statistically it's safer to fly statistically it's safer to fly that's crazy right yeah. most people will be uh, fascinated or almost intrigued when they hear this what it's safer to fly because the flight seems so dangerous but like uh, why is it statistically safer to fly because uh, people around you are stupid maybe when you're driving <laughs> but, uh, honestly uh, airplanes uh, airplanes are very controlled they're they're inspected they there's tight regulation to like certify an airplane to carry humans takes a lot of time and effort and takes a lot of rigor most importantly to keep it certified to fly again takes a lot of time and effort and rigor and uh, pilots need to be very good right there, there's again a lot of time and effort that pilots need to put in and they need to be very rigorous with their training so there there's a lot of checks it's a very controlled uh, industry and for good standards people. are very high quality standards yeah. are very high no rain well hello folks welcome to the narayan agarwal show yet again Today we have a genius with us. Yes, I say genius because not only is he my friend, but he is an aerospace engineer. He literally knows rocket science. <laughs> he is also a flight enthusiast and a pilot, a licensed pilot. I've had the privilege of flying with him and not dying, being alive more than two, three times. Welcoming on the show, my dear friend and one of the smartest people I know, Mr. Ujwal Dalmia. Thank you, Narayan. That's that's way too much praise. Ah, uh, but thank you. <laughs> Ujwal, how are you doing out there in California? You're doing well. Pretty good, yeah. Ah, uh, weather has gotten really nice, so enjoying that. Amazing, amazing. Well, Ujwal, let me ask you first. How did you get into the whole aerospace, the flying industry? What what enthused you into it? What what fascinated you about it? Is it something that you knew from a ch- your childhood, or you got into it eventually? Dude, that's a great question, and I honestly don't have an answer for that. I'm I've been searching for an answer to that question. Um, yeah, just uh, as a child, I wanted to be a pilot. Just like everyone has, like pilot or firefighter or astronaut, like yeah, like <laughs> astronaut or something like that. I wanted to be a pilot, and somehow that stuck with me for a while, and then. when i got glasses people people said hey like you can't be a pilot if you're if you have uh, if your vision is not perfect and you wear glasses and i i didn't know if that was true or not but then i just went like oh if i can't uh, fly airplanes maybe i can just uh, design and build airplanes and again that that stuck with me and uh, i i followed through with it i i had the support of friends and family i had the resources so i i just kept kept going where my heart took me and uh, today i'm working in the drone industry and i'm i'm very grateful for that i'm very happy with that wow that's amazing so it's like uh, you know somebody told you, you cannot be a pilot because you have glasses so you were like okay that's fine i'll tweak a little bit but still my love for flights will remain and i will go into studying and Uh, learning more about flights what's really unique is yeah. you're one of those 5% people i would say who have a childhood dream like astronaut fireman flight and who stick with it which is awesome yep. which is awesome yeah and airplanes i think everyone finds them fascinating right like yes. airplanes are just fascinating and uh someone recently asked me like why why airplanes what fascinates me about airplanes and i i just i just had one thing to say it's they they're like heavy metal tubes and yet they somehow fly like <laughs> that's one how? way to put it huh? <laughs> i i did i did 6 years of college and i still i still i still just i'm i'm still like how does this thing fly wow still just as fascinated just as amazed by it if not more see that's very interesting like i know you went to purdue university one of the top schools for um, aerospace and you know flight science and then you went to stanford university for your masters degree in aerospace engineering even going through such an education you're still fascinated about the subject i think that's what uh, makes it special and that's what makes you an enthusiast and that's what 
makes you become successful in this industry because you still have that fascination about it. You're not over it. I think if you were over it, then then also your career, whatever, every, the learning is over. I completely agree. Um, I still have like a it's it's a it's a childlike fascination uh, with airplanes. Uh, I I have yet to had that have that feeling where it's like oh shit it's a Monday or like yeah it's a Friday it's like Friday like there's often Fridays where I'm like oh, I can't wait to get back to work <laughs> on Monday and like get on to that problem so I love um, it yeah uh, like uh, not not many people uh, already like not many people know what they want to do and then even fewer people are able to do what they want to do so I'm definitely very lucky uh, uh, to be able to to one know what I want to do and then to also be able to do exactly that thing. So yeah, amazing. I want to ask you about a big event that happened uh, recently, SpaceX, which is a privately owned um, space exploration slash you know uh, going out to outer space company, launched its rocket and sent humans after about I think ten years into the outer space. What's so special about SpaceX? Why so much talk? I want to learn from the aerospace engineer himself. Well, uh, actually, so SpaceX is the first commercial uh, company to send astronauts to space. And they are the first in the... Uh, in, so the last time astronauts launched from US soil was 2011. Uh, we have launched humans into space since then using the Soyuz ro rockets uh, from Russia. But uh, the, the SpaceX launch last week marks the first time uh, in the past nine years that uh, the astronauts have launched from US soil. And that's just an amazing feat because now the US has capability to launch, uh, launch its own astronauts again, which it did not for the past nine years. Now, like talking about SpaceX specifically, they they just have a entirely different approach to everything, and it's definitely not like a traditional aerospace company. They're they're not boring for starters. <laughs> they 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 are the only aerospace company that I know of that has a has a, has a fan following, and that's true. Like, People, people really are enthusiastic about them, even if they, even if, like, not, not just like the employees and like the people who are directly related to the company. People all over the world are enthusiastic about the space, uh, the work SpaceX does, and uh, they, they are like, legitimately fans of SpaceX. Um, what do you think brings that? Is it uh, the unique approach that you talked about? Uh, I, I, I've heard one thing, like you know they. They can. They have the ability to reuse a big part of the rocket. Tell, tell us a little more about that. What's so different so, than what traditionally NASA or uh, we here in India and ISRO do uh, when it comes to looking at rockets and thinking about rockets? So uh, the reusability part, uh, it's 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 like a feature, but uh, it's really a product of the of the company's approach to solving problems they they just approach it with a completely different uh, uh mindset where like and and like definitely credit goes to Elon Musk where he just he just thinks of something and like talks to engineers and like they they get all the resources and everything and they just they just go out there and do it versus uh traditionally like usually how rockets were designed was so NASA would come up with a design and then like they'd have to think about like, you know, a lot of different uh, contractors and whatnot. And then once, once they had the design rolling and like the contractors were already like doing their parts of the subsystems and whatnot. Now that like changing the design is like almost impossible at that point for NASA and for traditional companies versus SpaceX, they're nimble about it. They, they, they start working on a design and they keep iterating. They, uh, for example, the, the SpaceX uh, rocket that you watched, that the one that launched last week with astronauts on board, the crew capsule, uh, previously it was supposed to be uh, able to land on, on land rather than 
use parachutes to come down in the sea and then be recovered. So, like, if it is able to, uh, if it's able to touch down on land, then it's much faster to reuse the rocket. It's much faster to uh, just it, it's right there. So, like, you get the astronauts out, you take the capsule into the hangar, refurbish it. And then you, you, it's out there again. You can use it again. Like so, maybe, back in the day, yeah. the rockets, where the where the astronauts were, that cell, that capsule used to come and go into a parachute and go into the sea for a safe landing. Yeah, and, and then so, astronauts were, would come out. But now SpaceX is trying to land it just straight on the land, kind of like a helicopter in some sense. That, so that's what they were trying to do. Um, okay. SpaceX, well, so traditional companies they just discard the entire rocket uh, eventually. First, uh, it rocket goes up. It discards a small chunk of it. Um, the rest of it keeps going. The first chunk uh, comes back down. Then it keeps going, and then it discards a second chunk, which might come down back, well, come back down to Earth, or it might just uh, stay in orbit. Um, and then, depending on how far you're going, what kind of rocket you're using, you either just discard two chunks, or for the case of the Saturn V, the rocket that took uh, humans to Moon. There were five stages to it, and then the part where the astronauts landed on the moon, they they left a bit on the moon as well, and stuff like that. So eventually, it was all single use. At uh, it, it never, got, no part ever got reused, right? Then the space shuttle, the space shuttle itself was uh, kind of reusable, but it took really long for them to uh, refurbish the space shuttle, and it was very expensive to refurbish the space shuttle. And it was a completely different approach to reusability. And then comes SpaceX, and they have this rocket that comes back down vertically, and then they can re uh, they can reuse it within a month. And their costs of being able to reuse it is uh, are really low. Wow, so, that's almost uh, like exponentially different than what was being done. That's what makes yeah. it so special. So cost, yeah, efficiency, everything. Wow. And then uh, the, the reason they're able to do it, though, going back to what I was talking about, how they're nimble. So they were planning to land the crew capsule uh, on solid ground, right? And then they sort of figured out, oh, wait, uh, this, this isn't really worth it because it will take a lot of uh, effort to actually make it safe and to make it certifiable. So like making it safe is one step. And then the next step is like, convincing other people convincing the authorities that it is safe so like they certify you to be able to do that right uh, and they determined it will take a lot of effort to do that uh, and their ultimate goal is to get humans on mars and so they determined uh, at a very late stage in their design process uh, they determined that it's not really worth uh, doing that and at that point some uh, like a, a traditional aerospace uh, dis like a traditional rocket being designed in the traditional way by NASA or like the United Launch Alliance or something like that, that would have just kept going with the momentum. Like, oh, it's already too far in. Like, we can't change the contractors for the for the landing legs or whatnot. And so that would have just been like, okay, we can't really do this. Versus SpaceX was like, eh, it doesn't look good. Let's just let's just get rid of it. And then they decided to just uh, recover the crew capsule from sea and then refurbish it and then reuse it for cargo flights later on. So they, they, they're able to change their design very quickly and they, they're able to test it out very quickly. And that really is, is one of the biggest uh, differences between SpaceX and uh, traditional aerospace. And I also think it helps to be a private company. Because we've seen around the world, there's no doubt about it. Whenever the government gets involved into creating something new, in most cases, they're usually very slow, very bureaucratic, hard to move. And uh, this again shows the power of privatization in some sense when it comes to new development and new technology. That, that's true, but aerospace also presents some of the best, ex one of the best examples of uh, the government getting things done, the Saturn V rocket. Kennedy said, we will, launch, uh, we will put humans on the moon by the end of the decade. And they got it done. And that was entirely <laughs> a government-run effort. So that's not always the case. But yeah. yes, uh, 
traditional aerospace, government-run aerospace has become very slow, very bureaucratic. Yeah. Uh, at that time, it was a different uh, world. And yeah, I, I agree. Privatization definitely does make yeah. a difference. Wow, that's amazing. I want to touch upon something that you mentioned about SpaceX's mission is to put humans on Mars. I've heard Elon Musk say that uh, humans can live on Mars. And I know nobody is an expert about this because this is a, a theory, this is a, a plan or a vision that he has. What's your opinion as somebody who's really been into the subject, who's really dug deep into the subject? Do you think humans can live on Mars or go to Mars? If yes, by when? Honestly, on that topic, I know just as much as the other, like any other person, it's, it's highly speculative. I could probably comment a little bit on the rocket technology bit of it. And yes. talking about that, the, the, uh, again, like I, there, there'll be people who are skeptics about this, but there's another rocket that SpaceX is currently developing and that's being talked less about, but, uh, they're working on, uh, so, uh, something they call the uh, the BFR, the Big Falcon Falcon rocket, yeah. <laughs> the Big Falcon uh, <laughs> spaceship. If you if you know what I'm yes, <laughs> um, all the smart ones will get it. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, so they they're moving again. They're moving very fast with it. They've built physical prototypes. They've uh, built, uh, they've, they've designed and tested and uh, test flown what arguably is the most advanced rocket engine ever developed. Wow. And they're moving forward with this uh, next rocket very quickly. So it's possible we, we're like sending a Mars expedition uh, in the next decade. Honestly, that's possible. Will, like what's the probability of it maybe like i would say a little better than 50 50 because there's a lot of uh, so th there's the rocket technology part of it like do you have something that can send humans to moon but then the, the next question is like how do you uh how do you uh, keep the humans alive right like you don't want dead people reaching mars that's not useful <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to kill astronauts they're talented yeah, yeah. people they have families <laughs> No one's gonna get on. More, I don't think anyone's gonna get on board uh, the <laughs> ship if they know they're gonna die. So um, the the biology part of it, the human part of it, that's that's something that's being researched, uh, and NASA is doing more work in that direction. So uh, they last year was it last year? Recently. <laughs> Uh, they they had this expedition where they had two astronauts stay in space for an entire year, and that was to that was to study the long term effects of staying in space on the human body, both wow. uh, like physical health, mental health, um, different aspects of it. And uh, the so the great thing they did was they sent someone who has a twin right one of the two astronauts who spent a year in space he has a That's twin amazing. on earth who sent a, who spent a year on earth and so now they kind of have an experiment and a control and control yeah and they're they're uh, it's it's not perfect right like it's it, there's definitely like this human on earth Correct. he has his own activities his own emotions like there, there's definitely Correct. you cannot have but, a perfect but, control yeah, something like but this. Yeah. That being said, like they're they're definitely moving quickly towards fig figuring out what are the physical health effects, what are the psychological effects of uh, long term yeah, yeah. space flights, like spending so much time in zero g, etc. Um, That's amazing. So there's mainly two parts to this: sending somebody to Mars. One is the rocket technology; if the rocket itself can go, and then the second part, which is also very important, you said, is keeping the humans alive and seeing if the biology, everything will work well. Because if you go into outer space and you bust out because of the low pressure, there's no point sending humans there, right? So exactly. I think so, these are very two uh, interesting pieces. Yeah, and like you don't just want them to be alive. You want them to be alive and well. Functional, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
uh, I think uh, alive is much easier than alive and well. And uh, there's tons of research going on in that uh, in that arena, and that's mostly being uh, worked on by the government agencies, by NASA and uh, ro- uh, the the Russian uh, space agency and other agencies that are part of the Amazing. International Space Station program. And uh, I mean, India is kind of doing something similar where. Um, while we, we kind of already have the rocket to send as, uh, to send our own astronauts to space, not to Mars, not to Moon, but just to space. Um, and like I, I'm sure uh, you are aware, and most of your viewers are aware of the Gaganyan program, where uh, our Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that we want to send someone uh, an indian to space by our 75th anniversary of independence by 2022 and india has the rocket that can lift uh, the payload the the capsule with humans in it we're currently developing the capsule and we are also currently uh, having astronauts train uh, to get ready for the program and uh, uh, currently, the astronauts, uh, the, there's four candidates, uh, and they're in Russia uh, training to uh, to handle the zero G flight and different aspects of uh, training wow. for different aspects of space flight. And then they're going to come back to India and train on specifically the Gaganyan vehicle uh, on how to operate it, etc. And like for specifically the mission they're going to go on. Uh, That's super fascinating. I have a question about the Indian Space Research Organization, the ISRO. Uh, it's it's also very uh, unconventional what the ISRO has been doing in the past few years. Uh, basically, uh-huh. uh, they're proving that Indians are the smartest when it comes to doing things cheap, <laughs> right? We can get anything uh-huh. done at a cheaper cost. So that's that's the image and that's the um, you know thing that we've learned. But how how far is that true and uh, the Mars rover that we sent, we sent it at a much cheaper cost than what NASA did. So a few, a few comments about the ISRO and the Mars rover and the, uh, the effectiveness of ISRO. ISRO is a fantastic organization. The, the stuff they've achieved, uh, it's amazing, especially in the past decade, they've picked up pace. They've been hitting milestone one after another. And the, the rate of success is pretty high too. That being said, one of the biggest reasons India is able to do things so cheap is because of cheap labor. Um, yeah, like, but I, I think uh, I, the, the company I'm working for, we're working on developing a new drone and the biggest development cost is the, the cost of labor. Or when, when we, uh, since it's a startup, we, we have, we have more transparency and, they present financial details to us every month and they show what, uh, what are the expenditures. Literally every month for the past year, uh, the biggest expenditure by a huge margin has been payroll. Mm. And uh, not just pay, like payroll is part of the cost of labor. Like there's other parts where like you have to uh, provide a good working environment and stuff like that. And India, India is able to really save on labor because people, people like cost of living in India is lower, and then Correct. engineers in India aren't paid the same salaries that they are here. We hear about uh, IITians getting jobs in America where they're paid uh, in uh, like over one crore rupees per year, and we find that fascinating. But then here in Silicon Valley. I've, almost all software engineers make that much and huh. that's just, like we, we we just end up spending that much as well because that's how expensive it is to live correct, here correct. Uh, so that makes sense that so ISRO is about uh, ISRO, ISRO can get a lot of stuff done for cheap because of cheap labor uh, one yeah. last thing I want to hit about space and then we'll go into flights um, and aeroplanes um, what is the International Space Station like we always hear it, International Space Station, International Space Station. Is it kind of like a station where people can go rest, eat food, astronauts who go to space? What is it? What is the International Space Station? It's an orbiting la- laboratory. That is the shortest description I can give for it. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a satellite. Um, and so if, if this is the Earth, it's, it's going around Earth. 
it's uh, about 200 kilometers. Uh, it's, it's orbiting about 200 kilometers above the surface of Earth. And uh, the closer you are, the faster you need to go to stay in orbit. So it's zipping uh, around Earth at around, uh, I, I might get this wrong, uh, but uh, if I remember correctly, it's at around 17,000 kilometers per hour. I, I might be, That's I, I am not sure fast. about the unit. It's, it's, it's just mind-blazingly fast. Uh, yeah, basically. And uh, it's uh, it's had continued humans human presence for a very long time. Again, I don't remember the number off, off the top of my head, but I think it's been more than 20 years since there's been uh, uh, someone on the International Space Station at all times. Oh, and, so a human uh, being, a person is always there in the mm-hmm. International Space Station. So there's like, do they have kind of a room in it or... Uh, how do, who well, manages it? Uh, so it's managed uh, by uh, a, a group of space agencies and they have a crew capacity of six people at most. Currently, there's five people on board, including the two astronauts that launched on the SpaceX rocket. And they, they have... Uh, it's, it's not like luxurious where like you have a room to yourself. But they have crew quarters. They have a lot, uh, a lot of things going on. They have uh, a lot of exper- Like I guess they, they of course have, uh, they of course have stuff to support the astronauts that are on the space station. But what would be more interesting and relevant to us is they have a ton of experiments going on at all times. There's experiments related to uh, climate change. Like what if we, like what if we did something different? Like maybe we learned something from space that we can apply to Earth to like reduce climate uh, to to reduce the impact of climate change. They have experiments, uh, as I mentioned, on uh, like human effects on uh, on humans of uh, space flight. They also have experiments where they're playing, uh, they're growing plants in space. So uh, if we're sending a mission to Mars, maybe we'll have to grow food. Uh, so they, they have a ton of different experiments. These, these are, this is a very small summary. Uh, they, they have a ton of different experiments going on at any given time. And, That's uh, so fascinating. I, th- I feel like whenever I speak about space and I get to learn all these things from you, it's like a totally perspective shift. Uh, it's it's amazing. So they're doing experiments of trying to grow plants in space. That's yeah, amazing. and the the list is too long for me to even like go through. Uh, I would really encourage you to just go watch videos. They they do live feeds from the ISS. There's a ton of videos uh, from the ISS about the ISS. I would really encourage you to go watch a few videos on YouTube about the That's awesome. Space I'm fascinated. I'm going to do that too. And I'm sure the viewers are going to uh, watch videos of ISS experiments now. Thank you, Joel. Um, moving on to flights, um, flying, aeroplanes. Who invented the aeroplanes? Like they say the, the Wright brothers were the first people to fly the aeroplanes. But I heard there was a person just two days before... Uh, having airplanes. What's the story behind it? I find that a very fascinating story. Well, so the Wright brothers are the first, uh, were the first people to fly and they, they, I, I would say they are the inventors of the airplane. The, there was another project that was actually government funded by the US government that was uh, also trying to build a, a powered flying machine. And it it just didn't work, and the Wright brothers got to it first. There's there's not I, you could read much more. Uh, you could read more about the story, but that's the in, short in, in essence. Uh, that is it. Like I think the most interesting part about the story is that other project was actually U.S. government funded, and the Wright brothers were just doing it with their own money, and oh, wow. uh, they got Again, to it first. We come to the power of privatization. The other other dude probably had to get so many approvals from the government. Shall I move forward (laughs) with this, this, this? The Wright brothers just kept doing it, kept being nimble, as you say, and did it. Maybe, maybe. The the other guy got pretty close too. Like, uh, it wasn't like it was a complete failure. (laughs) Yeah. 
having said that, what's one of the most fascinating things to you about flights? See, we, we just think in general, flying is fascinating, right? Because something is flying. But you really know the deep science of flying. Um, and you are a pilot yourself. I mean, you, you know, you just, you can make that thing fly. So, <laughs> so what's, what's fascinating to you? What are some things that are very unique to you about flying? So, um, I, I did study aerospace engineering, but aerospace engineering is a field consisting of different special specialities. Uh, you can, you can do a concentration in controls or you can do a concentration in structures. What I find most fascinating is aerodynamics, how air flows around, uh, not just airplanes, like how air flows around anything, honestly, but, uh, yeah, just you, you, you build a shape in a way that like suddenly it goes fast enough and air is able to generate enough force on it that it can fly. Like, how is air able to do that? What, what uh, and how can we do that better? That's really all, all I uh, think about. Like, even when I am on an airplane, I, I you can often find me, if, especially if I'm in a window seat, you can often find me just staring outside and like trying to see what different tiny bits are doing to add up to be able to carry you at 30,000 feet above in the air. That's amazing. So it's, it's, it's about uh, what's really fascinating for you is to figure out as to how the, the law and the physics works of the air flowing exactly. and then how can we craft something to utilize that power and that potential. So in some ways, it's kind of like solar energy. You know, there's already energy there, but we are not tapping into it. But if we can find a way to tap into it, we will have better and cleaner energy on Earth. Same way with flights. If we can find out a better way to construct a figure, a structure, in a way, we can use that potential that's already provided by the airflow better and fly better, right? I guess. I mean, honestly, that's not the best analogy. Correct. Um, but, but it works to some extent, yeah. Correct. For a person who does not know rocket science, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when flying, when flying, what are some things that you have to really keep in mind when you're the pilot? Uh, that the crew or the passenger don't really care about. Um, what are some um, things that you have to be very cautious of, cautious of? When you're driving on the car, you got to always look out for other cars. Is it the same for fly, when you're flying? Because there's not much. Or like, what, what does a pilot look for? Well, once, once, you, uh, once you are in flight, once you're like steady and level, when, for example, your seatbelt sign is turned off, Seatbelt signs are never turned off when I'm flying because I'm flying a small <laughs> airplane. Also, you've seen me drive, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, when you're on an airplane and the seatbelt sign is turned off, well, uh, you could say figuratively the seatbelt sign is kind of turned off for the pilots as well, depending on the flight. So, like if you're on a long haul flight, like the pilots can sort of relax a little bit. Uh, there's of course uh, ATC communication, so. Uh, uh, there's ATC communication and then monitoring what's going on with the airplane. If something goes wrong, you really got to be ready to take over. And then there's like some level of planning for like what's coming up next, like maybe looking at weather. Uh, if you're close to landing, looking at uh, the approach charts, what you can expect depending on the weather, the traffic, you, you call ATC and like try to figure out uh, what different paths uh, out of the different paths what paths they would want you to take uh, when you get in for landing uh, all of that it usually does not require as much attention as uh, it would to drive a car now uh, that's crazy that's crazy for for an average person to hear yeah yeah um you you're not constantly looking out for airplanes because uh once, once you're in three dimensions, there's a ton more space. That's why uh, you can have so many airplanes uh, flying all the time and you don't hear about mid-air collisions uh, as often. Uh, but the, And then there's ATC watching out for you. So, so when you say ATC, the air traffic control, is this one body? Are these different places? Are these different areas in map? How does this whole 
network because I feel like anywhere a pilot is flying, he can talk to somebody. So who is the pilot or, or she can talk to somebody? Who is the pilot connected to when he or she are talking to somebody? So it depends on where you are. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, our flight. Uh, when you were here in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, we, we took off from Palo Alto. Then remind me, we flew over San Francisco, right? Correct. We didn't go to Monterey, right? Okay. Correct. So we took off from Palo Alto. We flew north towards the city of San Francisco. And then we kept flying north till we were over uh, the Golden Gate the Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, we, we did a few loops above the Golden Gate Bridge to get uh, to like enjoy the view, get a few good pictures for, for Instagram, of course. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we, we flew uh, in that general area close to San Francisco over the bay for like about half an hour. And then we flew towards the city of Oakland and then flew back towards okay, uh, right. Palo Alto. Right. So in this flight. When I was uh, on the ground and I turned on the airplane for the first time, turned on the engine and then turned on the radio, I tune in to the ground frequency for the airport. Uh, so there's a, there's a tower at the airport uh, and there's a person in there who I'm talking to. That person tells me like when I can go uh, to the runway, when I can taxi to the runway. So once I get approval, I taxi to the runway and uh, at the runway, I do a few and uh, a, t- a few tests of the engine and different systems on the airplane. Once I'm done with the tests, I switch over to tower frequency. So tower frequency is basically the 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 controller who's controlling the airspace that belongs to the airport. Okay. Right? So every so, airport has a certain airspace they are controlling. So when you yeah. talk to the ground staff, now you're done. You can fly off. Now you go to the tower control, which exactly. controls the airspace of all the flights okay. that are coming in and going out. They keep track. Yeah. So any flight in the designated airspace for that airport, uh, they have to be in contact with the, with the tower at that airport, the air traffic controller at that airport. Gotcha. So uh, after, after, talking to, uh, after talking to tower, I get clearance for takeoff. They tell me like, oh, you can take off uh, and then like maybe a bit of instructions on what I should do right after takeoff, like what turns or whatever. So uh, once I take off and then once I'm outside the frequency, uh, outside the airspace of the uh, tower of this airport, uh, you either have to switch to a different airport uh, airport frequency Depending, so in the Bay Area, we had to switch to another airport frequency because it's a very dense airspace. There's a few airports around, or uh, there's uh, what is called approach frequency. So then it's like a big area covered by one uh, one air traffic control center in some major hub. So like there's a Chicago center, there's a I there, I think there's a San Francisco center, but. Uh, so you'd be you'd oh, either connect to center or approach or something like that. So for our flight, uh, and, and uh, uh, all uh, almost all the time, the controller you're talking to will tell you who to contact next and what on what frequency. So on our flight, next we con- contacted uh, another airport, San Mateo Airport, mm-hmm. and then we contacted uh, San Francisco Approach. And since San Francisco is a big airport, you need clearance to enter San Francisco airspace. So San Francisco approach gives me clearance saying, and you have to hear these words, cleared into the Bravo. It's called Bravo airspace. So approach clears me into Bravo. Then, uh, then when I'm about to enter the Bravo airspace, uh, I switch to San Francisco tower frequency. That's the, fre- that's the busiest frequency I've been on because that's the frequency all those Airbus, Boeing airplanes, all the commercial jets yes. are talking to. You can, you can hear them clear. Like you, I've, I've, I've literally heard, I think uh, it might have happened on our flight as well, but uh, I've, I've literally been, uh, heard the tower uh, say like uh, Emirates, uh, whatever, cleared to take off. 
And then I saw a A350 roll down the runway and take <laughs> off. And then another time, and uh, or maybe this was our flight. I, I don't remember specifically which That's flight. Fine, no problem, uh, yeah. But uh, there was another time, and this was like the most fascinating thing that's happened to me while flying. Uh, uh, I was, I was, so I was to the left of San Francisco airport. San Francisco airport is here. I'm flying over here. And then tower tells me do 360 degree loops. So just stay, stay where you are, do a few 360 degree turns because there's another airplane taking off. And, and then they cleared another airplane to take off and I could see uh, an Airbus A3 thir- A340 take off in front of me. While you were doing just 360 degree loops yeah. in the air. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So, so, yeah, so we contacted, uh, I, I talked too much about flying uh, nice. there and not uh, about, I, I just but I, I get this. I get the sense of what you mean. Basically, the air traffic control keeps switching and every airport has their designated areas where you can then, yes. once you're approaching that area field, you can keep approaching them. And I guess yeah. most of Earth is and, covered. And then like there's that. a few centers which control mm-hmm. much bigger areas that, uh, that are not uh, in, uh, that are not under any airport is it safer to fly or is it safer to drive statistically it's safer to fly statistically it's safer to fly that's crazy right most people will be uh fascinated or almost intrigued when they hear this what it's safer to fly because the flight seems so dangerous but like uh, why is it statistically safer to fly because uh people around you are stupid maybe when you're driving (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, honestly uh, airplanes uh, airplanes are very controlled they're they're inspected they there's tight regulation to like certify an airplane to carry humans takes a lot of time and effort and takes a lot of rigor most importantly to keep it certified to fly again takes a lot of time and effort and rigor and uh, pilots need to be very good. Very, they, there's again a lot of time and effort that pilots need to put in, and they need to be very rigorous with their training. So there, there's a lot of checks. It's a very controlled uh, industry, and for good standards reason. are very high. Quality standards yes. are very high. Yes. Uh, something I've heard often working in the aerospace industry is you can take a part that costs costs ten dollars. And then you put it uh, on the on an airplane, and now it suddenly costs one thousand dollars. And that's that's not that's not just a saying. That does happen. You'll often see listings for parts which are ten dollars uh, for standard, and then thousand dollars for maybe thousand dollars is an ex- exaggeration, but it does go from ten dollars to two hundred dollars for aerospace parts because aerospace parts need to be that much more fail proof. Uh, the quality check redundancy. is just exceptional. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's redundancies built in. So like there's three flight computers on every airplane. And if two of them fail, the third one can still fly the airplane. And there's, there's a ton of other redundancies built all over the airplane. Um, so that way, if one part fails, that doesn't mean uh, that doesn't lead to a crash. So, What's your favorite airplane? My favorite airplane of all time. Let me grab a model. Uh, okay, please, please. So I have a model and a picture actually. <laughs> but my favorite airplane of all time is the F4U Corsair. It's a World okay. War II airplane. Uh, okay. This is this is a picture of the airplane. Okay. Uh, I see. It's got and, a nice uh, look. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just, uh, it's got such a good character and this is the model. So what uh, I think really fascinated me about this airplane is uh, you see you see the the kink in the wing uh, yes. over here. So it's yeah. called an inverted gullwing design. And I think that really adds character to the look of the airplane. <laughs> and the, the reason for that is because uh, the landing gear is placed right where the, the, the bend is, right? And Correct. The, the reason the bend is there is so that they can raise the nose and put a bigger propeller on there. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a World War II airplane, so it was uh, uh, designed 
to uh, design for war and but i mean it's unfortunate that it was designed to cause death but it was really good at it uh, it was good at design at, at what it was designed for and the japanese uh, the japanese used to call it the whistling death because it had a characteristic whistling sound because because of the air, there's air inlets uh, at the at the wing root and because of those air inlets uh, it had a characteristic whistling sound that's and super interesting when the japanese soldiers heard that whistle they knew that was imminent so oh, wow that's why it was called the whistling death wow so, what a, what a crazy was, story about airplanes <laughs> and it was uh, designed for ships so it can do really short uh, takeoffs and landings so it's just uh, it's just it it looks incredible and it's really good at what it does and uh, yeah that's that's my favorite airplane of all time thanks for sharing that as well last question i have for you is uh, i've seen those model airplanes on the internet in places where everything is almost transparent where like uh-huh. the floor of the airplane uh, the the sides of the airplane everything is transparent is that just a model or they are actually trying that and do you think something like that will come what's the use of having an almost transparent airplane honestly i haven't seen what you're talking about okay you might be talking about like augmented reality uh airplanes where like they put screens so uh there's been talk in, for a while in the aerospace industry of having airplanes that don't have windows because uh Wind, like windows are kind of difficult to put on airplanes they they cause stress concentration and the the structure it has to be stronger around them so there's been talk for a while about windowless airplanes and <laughs> aerospace engineers kind of uh, uh you know we find that more fascinating than uh, window uh, windows on airplanes uh yeah. <laughs> as long as we don't have to be in it <laughs> but so we're talking uh, about how like the outside maybe can be projected in the screen so people don't feel like they're clustered claustrophobic or they're clustered exactly and at the same so, time you can have a windowless airplane that's amazing okay yeah yeah and there's a few other uh, <clears throat> concepts for how airplanes could look in the future that are like wildly different from what uh, we see now and uh, uh some of those designs would require some sort of uh, augmented reality or something like that uh to make it real and so i think uh, what you're referring to as like transparent might be the augmented reality okay airplane. maybe i don't know much because this is rocket science <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, awesome thanks thanks ujwal um lastly i would like to ask do you have any questions for me do you have any questions for me but what about uh communications in aerospace uh, do you find most fascinating especially having overheard my conversations with atc when we flew right uh, what what do you find most fascinating and what did you learn out of that yeah so one thing is um what i learned when i was flying with you and i was hearing the air traffic control there's a couple of things that i noted about the communication that's supposed to happen number one it has to be very clear no crap no no filler words no unnecessary words it's a very to the point aimed communication second there is very little margin for emotions and uh, you know being uh, angry or sad or happy in that way because you can't bring that in when somebody is focused and guiding a bunch of people you know communication has to be very to the point transparent you cannot afford to fight with the air traffic control because you got to get the information and get things done so i think um it's a very unique way of communication and i think for pilots that would also be a big part of the training specific words aimed communication and not using too much uh, emotions because that's not the context that it would work in so i think that was very fascinating for me yeah i would say uh, maybe maybe from a layman's perspective it might seem that way but emotions do some sometimes come in and uh, there's a lot of hilarious youtube videos uh, of uh, air traffic control communication where uh, there's like either pilots uh, fighting with air traffic control and uh, there's this actually uh, there's this one new york uh, air traffic controller who uh, is amazing at his job uh, and he 
he makes jokes and whatnot. <laughs> uh, I, uh, That's amazing. And that, that I, makes I can, you see, like, like you know, ultimately us as humans, yeah. Yeah, it's a very human interaction. Uh, at the end of the day, it's all humans involved. I can forward you the name of the air traffic controller. I would again recommend go check out some of the communications <laughs> videos uh, of this guy talking to uh, airplanes at New York uh, JFK airport, which is like one of the busiest airports in the world. And like being able to have uh, a like lighthearted joke in his communication there is just crazy, but he does really well. That's a feat. Another thing I would, uh, I, I don't know if you noticed is we never, uh, so like one of the things uh, we never do is we never say letters. We'll never say uh, runway, uh, we, we would never say like taxiway A, taxiway B, even though the taxiways are called A, B, C, D. We say taxiway Alpha, taxiway Bravo, or like my airplane uh, code, the one we flew in was A37SP. But I never said A37SP to the controller. I would always say A37 Sierra Papa. Uh, so there's a phonetic alphabet. Uh, there's words designated for each letter. And so I'll never ever say letters in my communication with uh, air traffic control because what uh, I say a B and you hear a D and that could uh, that that's, could do chaos and confusion. That's really fascinating. So that's that's so, great. So there's less margin for mispronunciation and miscommunication. Yes. So you have a and, word pretty much prescribed with any letter. So if you want to say S, you say Sierra, not S. You want to exactly. say P, you say and I would never wow. And I would never say like 16. I would say 1-6. Because like, what if I say 16 and you hear 13 again? Ah. Like, same, so it's split with the numbers and it's... Uh, with the numbers, you say it individually, let, uh, digit by digit. And with the letters, you don't say it letter by letter. You say it word by word in that sense. Well, no. So like, uh, uh, say I had to tell uh, ATC my name, I would, uh, or like even like say an Adam has to tell ATC their name. And like the ATC uh, guy, some, for some reason, is like, spell it out. You would say, uh, alpha, uh, like Adam would say, Alpha, Delta, Alpha, Mike, like you, you know, right. so even uh, like you, the, these are designated letters and that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Ujwal, what a great uh, conversation. Uh, we really went in the depths of space and flight science and thanks for making rocket science a little more understandable for us. Of course. Uh, it was fun. Appreciate talking to you, you being on the show, brother. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hope to see you soon and fly with you soon.